Well, good morning. I'm going to try to get this started if I can. There we go. I actually did it right for the first time. Um, you know, some messages are hard to preach um, when you talk to a church. Some messages are very easy to preach when you talk to a church. I'm not talking about the delivery of them. I'm just talking about the message itself. And today's message is easy. Okay? We can all go home. Uh, no, we can't. Just kidding. We have the kids. They've got to, they have classes. But no, seriously, when I think about Emmanuel and over the 20 years that we have connected with this church in a variety of ways and times, um, this is an easy message to preach as we talk about the Church of Antioch. And it's easy because of the foundation, I think, that's been laid in this church over the years in worship, in Bible study, in gathering, in your generosity, and in your sending. And so today we're going to dive into that. And I hope it is a message that is um, an encouragement, but also maybe a challenge for some. As you think about your life here in Madrid in this moment in time in 2022, almost 23 Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. I thank you for this church. I thank you for all that um, you do through the people, the men and women, boys and girls here, Lord. Um, I thank you for just the, the, the testimony of so many. Lord, now as we look at your word, may every word that I say give you glory and honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? Like, you are a Christian, they are Christians. This author is Christian. This musician is a Christian musician. Our country is Christian. This leader is Christian. The word Christian is a term we often take for granted, but what can we learn from its origins? Last week, Pastor David preached about the life transformation of Saul on the road to Damascus. You know, he was blinded by the light, and he encountered Jesus, and it changed the trajectory of Paul's life forever. He went from being a persecutor of the early church to a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. In his early days as a Christ follower, Saul wasted no time in proclaiming the gospel. In fact, it sort of stunned the apostles when they first met him. They knew him as a dangerous man. In fact, here we see Barnabas, the encourager, step up for Saul and give him, you know, and his gospel transformation, and he gave him credibility. Listen to these words here. The um, Oops. I spoke too soon. You know, I need to go this way. Okay, here we go. I've got it. I'm, I'm catching on. Uh, so listen to these words. When he came to Jerusalem, talking about Saul, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told him how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Saul ended up going to the city of Tarsus for some time. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and he debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
And I think it is here in Tarsus where he was discipled and he grew as this new believer. And, and, but as we know Saul and Paul from his writings, we can be fairly certain he did not just stand by idly. As he grew as a young disciple, he was putting his faith into practice and, and sharing Christ wherever he could. Luke, the author of Acts, as he's telling about the expansion of the kingdom of God through the Acts of the Apostles, picks up the story again in Acts 11 where we find Saul and Barnabas. Luke records in this chapter the gospel beginning to be proclaimed to the Gentiles, specifically the formation of the Gentile church in the city of Antioch. Today, this city is in the bottom corner of Turkey. So many people came to Christ in Antioch that the locals coined a new term. They gave a new name for these followers, and it said it was in Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. It's doubtful that they gave this name to themselves. That would have been you know, hard-pressed to build upon you know, the body of Christ in that way. But we see elsewhere in Scripture where they used to describe themselves as disciples, the saints, the brethren, the believers to describe themselves. The Jewish people would not have named them Christians because Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And to call them Christians or followers of the Messiah would have been unthinkable for them. No, the people of Antioch noticed this movement and sought to find a new term, a new way to identify them. And then they took the Greek name for Messiah and added this Latin suffix, producing a hybrid word which we know today as Christian. Arkent Hughes, a pastor and author, writes, Though his, this name is wonderfully true, it is probably used in a derogatory and costly way. It was an outside distinction, a way to identify, a way to label. Unfortunately today, we find this word used in unhelpful terms. For us in the Western world, uh, the term Christian is almost like a cultural distinction. The word can be politically charged. It can lead people to think that Christians are simpletons or narrow-minded. The abuse in the church has been well documented. In countries who call themselves Christians, they do unthinkable atrocities. It's been well documented. So what do we know about the city of Antioch? So the city of Antioch was situated on the Orontes River, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and about 20 miles inland at the edge of a couple of mountain ranges. At this time, Antioch was the third largest city behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a cultural melting pot of people who were Greek, Jewish, Roman, Arab, and Persian. There are many Jews in the city. Some estimated up to a seventh of the population were Jewish. The city of Antioch was famous for its chariot racing and its deliberate pursuit of pleasure. Hughes calls it the Las Vegas on the Rontes or in a European context, Monaco on the Mediterranean. However, the city was most famous for its worship of the goddess Daphne. A temple was set up for her just outside the city in this laurel grove. Apollo's famous chasing of the Greek goddess Daphne and transforming it into a laurel tree was reenacted every night by the men and the priestess who were temple prostitutes. So it's in this dark and sensual backdrop where we have followers of Jesus who were first called Christians. 
The Christians were different. And I think in a good way. This morning, I want us to look at the beginnings of the church of Antioch and how discipleship plays an important role for the church. Healthy discipleship positions the church to give to others and to send, their, send out their own to the nations for the sake of the gospel. But you'll see in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As the Great Commission was given by Christ, we see in the book of Acts the gospel going from its beginnings to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 8, we see the gospel as it goes to Samaria. And the result was believers being scattered, but the gospel was spread and the gospel was being planted. And in this case, it was Samaria. In verse 4, chapter 8, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. But in Acts chapter 11, it goes even further. This is the church that started in Antioch. And we read this earlier. And let me read this again. Now, those who were being scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the great number of them believed, turned to the Lord. Now notice, they were scattered because of the persecution. They went to Phoenicia and Cyprus, as an island, and Antioch. They were mostly speaking to the Jewish people in those places, witnessing in synagogues, in the places of prayer that were set up in those cities. But in Antioch, they started preaching the gospel to the Hellenists, to non-Jewish, to Greek people. And here's what I find this very interesting is sometimes we overlook or we don't talk about much. I think it's important as we look at the beginnings of the church of Antioch, this missionary church, it's known for its missionary efforts, that the church planters, those who proclaimed the gospel, saw people respond in faith and began discipleship, began gathering of the believers, they were not named individuals, simply men from Cyprus and Cyrene. That is all we know, but it is super encouraging that these ordinary people played the key role of spreading the gospel. Just as today, gospel proclamation is not only for the professionals, so to speak, not only for pastors and missionaries in this world, it is for all of us, all of us as believers. People came to faith. The gospel crossed cultures. The missionary task, when you think about it, in other cultures, when a missionary goes to another culture, is pretty straightforward. You learn the culture, you learn the language, and then you plant the gospel. People respond to the gospel and you desire to see a church emerge out of those disciples. Now, it's pretty straightforward. It does not mean it's easy. There's often resistance, right? There's also a lack of receptivity. But it's pretty straightforward. This church plant, the new church plant, Antioch, the new church plant anywhere in the world where we see a church planted is not the destination, but it's actually the beginning point for yet other churches to be planted. This is what I call that, the idea of sending church. It's a community of Christ's followers. It's the church who have decided we're going to covenant together. 
And the sending church desires to be prayerful, deliberate, and proactive in its mission. The church is sending out, they're equipping, and they're making disciples who make disciples. They're commissioning and sending out both in their own city and nation. They work with other like-minded groups. They partner with others. They constantly encourage, support, equip, and advocate those who they're sending out. And the stories here over the years, and, and kind of my day job is being able to help churches, and often in other parts of the world, uh, mostly in the United States where I'm from. And, but over the years, I've just seen these stories starting to merge from local churches desiring to make a difference. A church in Nashville sent a team to Bangkok and to Brussels to plant a church that plants a church in their own country. A church in my hometown has a ministry amongst East Asians who attend this large university. A church in Oklahoma City has a team in Brussels that partners with a national church in Belgium that works in North Africa. A church in Kenya started taking its short-term trips to a neighboring country where the gospel needs to be planted. Another church sent a team to Panama City, Panama, engaging Chinese. A small church in Virginia rented an apartment in Reykjavik, Iceland, and they started rotating their staff on three-month integrals until they were able to see the gospel planted, disciples made, and a church established amongst Icelandic people. A Spanish church in Sevilla sends out short-term teams to to North Africa, and they take other area pastors, and, and with them, they're trying to cultivate missions in other Spanish churches. A church in Texas sends out English teachers and and coaches into countries that are restricted in Central Asia. A church in Chicago recognized that many of their men and women who work as professionals in companies in in their city travel all over the world for their business. They've decided to help them become intentional travelers. So whenever they go, they're equipped to share the gospel, encourage believers. A church in Mexico is trying to find a way to send members to North Africa. International churches all over the world offer English as a second language in their own city to develop intentional relationships, gospel relationships. The list can go on and on and on. And every church has a footprint in missions. And I found that each church typically has this unique way of being a part of the Great Commission based on their gifts, based on their passions, based on their capacity, based on their experiences, and the makeup of the congregation and its resources. It's not a one-size-fit-all. God gives, I think, gives the church gifts to utilize to fulfill the Great Commission, and He has given them to churches all around the world to proclaim the gospel. Missions is not simply for the large church. It's not simply for the U.S. church or the Western church. It's for all church. Now think about this for a minute. Think about our own footprint here in Madrid at IVC. People from many different countries. People come and go here due to work assignments. Study abroad students who are here for a season. Teachers who come and teach for several years in the Spanish school system. Families and friends who still live in your home country. Our international fellowships. Our ongoing prayer for the nations. Our desire as a church to be generous with our giving to help others. What is our footprint? We are a church that receives people from all over the world. That's given. 
What an opportunity as a church to send people back, send people to other places with the gospel message as disciples making disciples. One key piece is how the church makes disciples, and we have to consider the role of discipleship in sending. Look what happens in Acts 11.22. This descriptive story of the church of Antioch can help us learn three important lessons. They were global disciples in the making. Their discipleship cultivated a generosity, and their obedience to the Holy Spirit's instruction resulted in sending out their members for the missionary task. First, the church at Antioch were global disciples in the making. The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, remember he was the encourager, to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And that's important how they described him here. And as a great many people were added to the Lord Barnabas who was a good man, full of the spirit and faith, who was trusted, who was an encourager. He goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And we have found him. He brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught great number of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I'm full of questions here. I want to interview Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas. What did they have in mind? What did they do during that year that helped set this foundation for this church to be generous for this church to send out their own? I want to see some end results. I want to know what the book they read. (laughs) We see some of it. We see that they taught a great number of people, and that means probably in the gathering. It also meant they were evangelistic. They had outreach. They taught a great number of people. And as I mentioned earlier, this to me is the the intriguing point. It's the first time we see the word Christian used, even though it's mostly an outside designation for a community describing believers, followers of Christ, disciples. It was what others had observed in them. It was how others described them as little Christ. Ironically, the church leaders and teachers intuitively taught them to be little Christ. To live as Jesus lived, to love as Jesus loved, to give themselves away, to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. They were taught to love their neighbor. They were taught to be salt and light. They were full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate in the world who became like him live our lives in the same way, and we make disciples. This was the normative for the early church, I believe. But how did they arrive at this? What, what is a disciple? Pastor Mike Breen writes that the Greek word matheus is the word that Scripture uses for disciple, and it means learner. In other words, disciples are people who learn to be like Jesus and to learn what Jesus could do. As a disciple, he goes on to describe a disciple as someone who with increased intentionality. Now, think about yourself. and th- just For me, this morning, looking at the mirror, looking at myself, you know, what, does, what do I see? Am I a person, a disciple, 
who someone is with increased intentionality and passing time has a life and ministry that looks more and more like the life and ministry of Jesus. They increasingly, a disciple increasingly has his heart and character and able to do the types of things we see Jesus doing. So we don't have to look far in the New Testament to see this happen. happen. Look at the life of the disciples and apostles in the community that they led. They look more and more like Jesus. But the Great Commission does not stop with us. We are not merely receivers of the gospel. We, in turn, make disciples of all nations. A disciple reproduces himself or herself. We're not only recipients of the gospel, but participants in the Great Commission. How did they get to that point? And I think we have a clue from Acts chapter 2 about just what this fledgling church plant in Antioch taught. And to understand the context of the church of Antioch and how it became a sending church, how it became a church that was generous, that has been modeled for the last 2,000 years, we need to look at some of the context that we find written by Luke early in chapter 2 of Acts. Sometimes it's headlined, The Fellowship of the Believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the needs, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a great description of the early church. And this is what I like to call a normal day at church, right? And it sets the stage, though, for how a church acts in the future. Church is not simply a gathering on Sunday morning, though it's very important. It's a part of it. Church is simply not a location or even a building, though normally a church has a gathering location. Going to church for an hour and a half is probably not going to grow you as a disciple in this way. It takes individual time of prayer, reflection, scripture reading, and study. It takes group time of coming together and learning from each other and spurring each other on. And it takes the gathering time. And I think it takes serving one another and serving alongside one of the other. The early church was devoted. Devoting meaning to dedicate, to give priority to, to pay attention to. What were they devoted to? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were the eyewitnesses to the life, death, resurrection, ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. They knew him. They taught Jesus. Now, they did not have online Bible studies, radio, television, internet. They had to give an account of Jesus. So they told this story. The apostles knew Jesus, and they wanted to pass along to the disciples Jesus, the gospel. They also knew the Hebraic teachings of what we know today as the Old Testament. And this formed, in a biblical way, the church and its teaching. They also were devoted to fellowship. 
community, life together. They cried together. They celebrated together. They told life stories together. They helped each other out. They sold possessions to help one in need. They also were devoted to breaking of bread. And it was a remembering of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and they did this as a church, and they usually did this around a meal, and they did this regularly. They were devoted to the prayers. They prayed constantly. They fasted regularly. Everything you read about the early church, you always see prayer and fasting mentioned in the description. It's a blueprint. And so I believe that it was out of their discipleship that the church of Antioch instinctively knew what to do next. And as we'll see in Acts 11, verse 27, Agabus, a prophet, tells of a great famine. In Acts 13, as we'll see in a moment, the Holy Spirit directed them to send out their own. This church of Antioch had this worldview, had this heart for other people, and I think it was because of what was planted in them. Maybe in the year, maybe it was several years, obviously, planted in them this DNA of gospel life. And I believe it shows us two traits that the church of Antioch is known for. Number two, their discipleship cultivated generosity. They're a church that gave of their material resources. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief. And I think this young church had a generous heart. They were taught to give themselves away. And so when they heard about a famine, then when they heard about something that, of someone in need... And how it would greatly affect their brothers in Christ. They knew instinctively that we need to do something about it as a church. And they took up an offering. Most likely it would be hard to buy food and take it to Jerusalem. So they sent Saul and Barnabas on this trip to deliver their gifts. In this way, the church could distribute as needed. The church local in Jerusalem could distribute as needed as the famine occurred, thus allowing the poor who would not be able to afford food, that is an inflated price during the famine, the church of Antioch took notice and gave. They knew the apostles' teaching. The followers of Jesus helped one another. They gave freely. They had generous hearts. And often in my work, I'll see younger churches feel like they cannot give. Well, we're too small. We're too young. We don't have enough resources ourselves. We're just trying to make ends meet. And they feel that they need to receive resources, not give them away. So they can be all about the mission, so to speak, and the resources needed to fulfill the mission in their own location, but they miss the opportunities to give themselves away. Heath Fernando, who's a theologian, wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, and he writes this about the young church Antioch. How they gave a gift to the mother church in Jerusalem shows how the missionary spirit had caught on so soon in a church that would become the mother church of Gentile missions. What a great role reversal. 
the mother church in Jerusalem sends the gospel, and the daughter church in Antioch sends money back to the mother church. And it also so shows this solidarity that can happen between churches. And this is important for us today. Just as we've been giving offerings to the Ukrainian churches, a partnership between churches, Baptist churches here in Spain, and churches in the Ukraine is solidarity. Now, we do not have, when we think about Antioch, we do not have the benefit of sitting in a business meeting around the table or something and looking at their annual report, looking at their annual budget, looking at how much money does each person give, their per capita, whatever that would be. We don't have that benefit. All we do know, though, is that everyone contributed according to their ability. It's not about the amount, but I think the obedience of everyone making an offering for this immense need. Giving is one way a church can demonstrate its commitment to the Lord. Now, again, think about our church here in Emmanuel. And this is why this makes it relatively easy to speak. Several times this fall, the need has been identified and members here has, and attenders have given. Maybe it's the pain and suffering of the people in the Ukraine. Maybe it's world hunger. Maybe it's Operation Christmas Child and you're, you're filling up a, a shoebox. Maybe it's helping youth go on retreats and sponsorship. It's opportunities for you to give yourself away. And I believe it naturally happens because generosity has been planted. It's been cultivated in your hearts. And one way that we can respond as a church is through giving, each one according to his ability. Whether it's a monetary gift, food, clothing, whatever it would be, it reflects the very heart of God who is a giving and generous God. In chapter 12, Luke writes about James being killed and Peter being imprisoned. And, but in 13, we pick the story back up. Their obedience, this is number three, their obedience to the Holy Spirit's instruction resulted in sending out members for the missionary task. Now, they were in Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Samuel, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manina, Long lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord, think about what they were doing as a church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Sit apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I have called them to. Then the church, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. In Act, when Acts 13 happens, it was a natural part of the church. It was a part of who they were. They gathered together as they regularly do. They were praying together as they always did. They were fasting. Remember what we talked about in Acts 2, 42. They were worshiping. They were in close communion to the Holy Spirit, and then the Spirit spoke. And here we see a church and community capturing the Great Commission. And I believe it's significant because up until now, a person, seemed it, the call seemed to be uh, more individual. I love the, the, the earlier scripture reading uh, in the prayer I and mean, talking about Isaiah. And, you know, you, you see it with Isaiah and Elijah and Abram and Joshua. It was, it was seemingly individual, God speaking to that person. But in Acts 13, we see a different description. God speaking to the church. And the church got behind this direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, they're in the church at Antioch identifiable place, remember the map, prophets and teachers, believers with identifiable gifts, 
and there are identifiable leaders from different cultures. I love it when you look at the makeup of Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. They were not all from the same place. They reflected the culture in which they lived. And take a look at the sequence, worship and praying. The Holy Spirit speaks, set apart for me. There's a call to obedience. And what happens next? They go back to worshiping and praying. Now, was this during the 10 o'clock service? I don't know. <laughs> was, maybe it was a very long service. Fasting, was though, was an active part of the church. Maybe they were in the middle of a fasting time. But they went back to fasting and worship. And we do not know if it's Sunday church or several weeks or months. But nonetheless, the church continued to pray and fast and hear from the Lord. And then they laid hands on them and sent them off. A blessing, a prayer, but also demonstrating that when we send someone off, we're not sending you off alone. We are going with you. The church is going with you. The Spirit is going with you. One commentator writes, The Holy Spirit commissions these two preachers and teachers, Barnabas and Saul, to leave Antioch and proclaim the gospel to new regions. The fact that Luke relates the words, he writes, of the Holy Spirit in direct speech Placed between his comment on the worship of the church and the sending off of Barnabas and Saul, it underscores Luke's emphasis when writing that the initiative for the missionary work comes from the Holy Spirit, and it inaugurates Paul's missionary work after the ministry in Antioch. The congregation responds to prophetic directive from the Holy Spirit with these four actions. They, they were called for another period of fasting. They continued praying. They laid hands on them, evoking God's presence, blessing and empowerment, and then they sent them on his way. And while the church of Antioch acts as the sending agent, the sending agency, if you will, it was the Holy Spirit who sits apart, calls, commissions, and empowers the two missionaries. In Acts 13.4, we see they, then they were sent out by the Spirit. It's important to note that the missionary calling from our Lord and, and the local church, it's tied together. They act in unison. If you sense the Lord directing you to a mission or ministry, it's important to note that there is a role of the local church. I think personally that the Great Commission was woven into the fabric of their being. It wasn't a program. It wasn't an event. It wasn't an emphasis. It's just who they were as a church. That's what I like to believe. The church, though, today, as I look around the world, is recapturing its part in the Great Commission. In the ministry the Lord has given me, I'm seeing this happen before my eyes. It's exciting. It encourages churches big and small in cities in rural areas, churches that meets in houses or in big buildings. They're recognizing that the Great Commission is for all churches. A friend of mine who's Malawian, lives in Malawi, was one of the first missionaries sent out from his church's denomination to South Asia. His church... Um, was small. They did not have a lot of resources, but he and his family and their church knew God was asking them to go, and the church sent them. Churches around the world are recognizing the Great Commission was given to them. Churches from Africa, Latin America, from China, from Korea, from all over the world are saying, we are not just recipients of the gospel. We are also to be great uh, participants in the Great Commission. So what does it look like for our church to whom are we sent? Where's the Holy Spirit leading us to go? 
Who are the people that God has placed in our own neighborhood, in our own city? In the Great Commission, it's an assumption that you will go, so what is our part to play? When I think about John 20, 21, it says, As the Father sent me, so send I you. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. How the Father sent Jesus and Jesus is sending us, they had this sent identity. In Acts 1.8, kind of where it begins, the outline of the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 5, we see it as salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In 2 Corinthians, I talked about the last time, you're an ambassador. Mission is not this activity. It's an identity. In Acts 1.8, we say that they're called witnesses by Jesus. You will be my witnesses. What is exactly is a witness? It's a person who's seen something. It's a person who makes a statement in court. It's a person who's present at an event, and they can say that this happened. And because the disciples had seen or experienced the event, they're able to report about it and give great detail about it. Jesus is saying that since you have seen and experienced me, that you will be my witnesses. Now think about our own lives. Think about the song that we sung earlier. How the story has impacted us. How the story has transformed our lives. And how we love to tell that story to others. Now we often identify ourselves by by what we do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with with that. It's just kind of how we describe ourselves. We say, well, I'm a salesperson. I'm a social media strategist. I'm a business consultant. I'm a teacher. I'm a nanny. I'm a missionary. I am a pastor. I play soccer. I'm an artist. These focus on activity and identity. And while they're good descriptors of what we do in our profession, they do not fully describe who we are. As little Christ, we are first and foremost adopted children of God. Our identity is in Him. Yet in, we see in Acts 1.8 that our identity as Christ followers is to be a witness. And the same in 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors for Christ. In this case, our identity is an ambassador. The ambassador is the highest ranking person who represents his or own, her own government while living in another country. We are, all of us, to represent Jesus wherever we are and whatever we're doing. I think often we kind of get this out of whack a bit, and we get it out of in the wrong order. First and foremost, we're Christ's followers. We're witnesses and ambassadors. So that's true no matter what our profession is. It's true no matter where we live. It's true regardless of the title we may hold in a church. All of us have a great commission responsibility. Some will go, some will pray, some will give, some will care for missionaries, some will focus on cross-cultural work in their own city, some will mobilize, some will equip, but all of us, and we all can have and be involved in this great commission task of making disciples to the nations. As a Christ follower, we all have a role to play, and when we hear a word the word missions or missionaries, we don't need to run from that (laughs) Um, and say this subject only applies to those people who are sent out globally. But as the church and as we come together and we bond together, it's going, it's caring, it's giving, it's praying. We have this sentness factor. God sent His Son Jesus and Jesus is sending us here, near, and far. 
So when, when I study the book of Acts and when I reflect on Acts 1-8, I see the talks of the gospel spreading from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And sometimes we see this sequentially. It's really the outline of the book of Acts and how the Acts of the Apostles happened to the ends of the earth. And I think the, gospel, I think the order of the Great Commission we see in Acts 1-8 is interesting. You know, we look around in our city and we say, who's in our Jerusalem? We look around in our country, who's in our Judea? We look in other parts of the world and go, who's our um, Samaria? And we look in places outside, I mean, so far out, so unheard of maybe, that's our uttermost parts of the world. But in our great city of Madrid, in our metro area of almost 7 million people, we have people from all over the world living here. Our congregation, this is why it's easy again, is a beautiful example of this truth. The nations have moved next door. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, it's all happening at the same time. International students, displaced people seeking refuge or second chance. International people moving here to work in their companies. Business people traveling here all over the world. Tourists, you walk around the city and you'll see this picture of the nations. So our challenge is not to look at this scripture as something that's sequential. We do one, then the other, then the other. It's how it happens all at the same time simultaneously. We have a unique situation here. Not, many of us are not originally from here. Or our parents are not originally from here. But this is home now. For others, it may be a one or two years that we're teaching in Spanish schools. For others, you've been placed on an assignment and you'll be here for three to five years, depending on how long your company allows you. Others have no plans to ever leave, while others are from here. What a unique and beautiful makeup of the church as we pray and as we study God's word, as we give, we serve others. In our community, God is shaping us as a church to work far beyond our property, far beyond our walls. As you receive the gospel, as you received instruction, you'll be able to carry it to wherever God calls you next. And that is so important in having this sent identity. In some cases, a manual may pursue places to not only send resources, but to send people as missionaries. In other cases, we have to move and we go back home or we go to another place, but we can make an impact. Because once you've lived in a different culture, you'll never be the same again. You've crossed this threshold, and your life is forever changed, whether you like it or not. It's forever changed. You'll see things differently. You'll experience life differently. God is shaping and growing you for your ministry and work once you return home, once you go to the next work assignment. I have a friend named Jay, and he's from the Midwest of the USA, and he came to Germany some years back with a company transfer. He's a chemical engineer. He wanted to be involved in a new church. He, he and his wife and his three children moved to a city in Germany, and they became involved in a German church plant. They did not know the language, but they started learning it. They began serving in the church. He had his day job, but they did all they could do in their free time to help this new church get started. After four years, his international company, because often we have to move people around because of a variety of issues, um, they moved him to Italy. And guess what Jay did? He and his family got involved in a church plant in Italy. And they started learning Italian and started helping all they could in this new church again while holding his day job. After five more years, his company brought him back to the home office. And guess what? 
Now they're back in the States, but they are also helping plant a church. God used him in each place. In each situation he was placed in, he saw himself as a sent one no matter where he lived. And he wanted to participate in the Great Commission. This same story can be your story this morning. Church, you are sent. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you you tell the story of your church. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for what it has meant to me and my family for over the years, but also what it has meant to so many other people and how you've shaped us and how you've helped us disciple others, how you've helped us have generous hearts and how you've helped us send people to the nations. Lord, continue to do that. Continue to use us today and in the days to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.